one other thing, too, real quickly, is that we have with us today my good friend, my pastor, my boss, I guess you could say, Pastor Lee Cummings, and he can come up to the stage real quick because it's a long ramp and it takes a while. But there are, there you go. Don't fall. And there are a lot of things that I could say about him. He's an author of an incredible book. He's a pastor of a fantastic church, leader of a movement, speaks all over the world in conferences. But the thing that uh, is most near and dear to my heart about him is that he's modeled and he's demonstrated a life pursuing God and what a life that's surrendered to God can produce inside of someone. He's shown me that it's possible to be a pastor, that it's possible to run the race, and uh, he's a spiritual father to me. And you don't get to pick your dad um, and physically, and so I'm glad that he picked me spiritually, but he's an incredible man, and so give him a big welcome and be ready to receive something awesome. Here, you want your Bible? Yeah, I'll take my Bible. Do you guys love your pastor? Jeremy is an amazing. He said all those nice things about me. Let me say some nice things about Jeremy. Uh, Jeremy uh, was the worst administrative assistant I ever had, <laughs> but he is the best disciple that I've ever had. Uh, as far as how he has just leaned in and learned. Uh, the, he came to me and wanted to plant a church, and so I said, well, the best way for you to learn is to work in my office and see day in and day out what goes on. And so I've got this position. You can be my administrative assistant. And he said, I'll do whatever. And so he did it. <laughs> and so that had to be just an incredible learning experience. Uh, but uh, for three, about three years, right? Four years. Um, <laughs> And like I said, four, and uh, but he he just soaked it all in, and uh, we're so proud of him and Anna and uh, you guys and what God has begun, the work that He has begun and is uh, finishing here. We have so many good friends that are here. Scott and Jerry uh, Johnson uh, are just great friends, and uh, it's fun to come and see everybody and a lot of new people. And uh, it's Fourth of July weekend in America. How many know you got to be a Navy SEAL Christian to be in church on the 4th of July weekend? Well, everybody else is uh, trying to clear out their lungs from fireworks toxins. Uh, the rest of us are in the house of the Lord, worshiping the Lord. No better place to be, though, than in the house of the Lord, praising the Lord. And uh, so my wife, Jane, uh, is with me. She doesn't like it when I draw attention to her, but uh, she's my best friend, my partner. We've been married uh, in just a few days. It will be 23 years, and uh, so she's been along on the ride with me from the very beginning, and uh, so glad to have her and glad to be with you guys. If you have your Bibles, open them with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and uh, while you're turning there, doesn't Pastor Jeremy looked good, too. I mean, just an amazing uh, turnaround um, physically in his body. And thank all, I just want to, as his pastor and kind of uh, a mentor from afar, to just thank all of you who have just loved on him and Anna and uh, been supportive of him as he's gone through all this. You know, there's so much that goes into starting planting and pastoring a church that, that people will never really ever know until they're on this side of it. And uh, so to carry that weight of loving people and, you know, planning a church and all the stress that goes with that and having a family and then on top of that having the physical ailments that uh, the enemy has just kind of bombarded Jeremy with, uh, he has been so courageous and bold, but he has just spoken so highly of all of you, of just your love and your prayers and your concern and your support and uh, filling in the gaps. So 
Uh, just thank you as kind of the mentor from afar. I just want to thank you on their behalf. I know that it has meant the world to them. And uh, God's got good things in store for this church. Amen. I mean, you have not even scraped uh, the surface or the tip of the iceberg for what God has in store. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse number 58. One verse. Paul writes this. He says, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. I love that verse. Paul is writing to uh, Christians in the city of Corinth that are enduring incredible persecution. There's also difficulties that are taking place within the church, divisions, uh, disputes, and doctrinal issues that are going on. And you add fuel to the fire with the external pressure of persecution and living in the middle of a culture and a world and a society that the, the current is going this way, but as followers of Jesus, we're going against the current, against the culture, and trying to go this way. And they're becoming weary. They're becoming tired. They're wondering if it's worth it. Is it possible? And in the middle of that, Paul, in the, in the very end of his book, gives them this verse. And this verse has come alive to me over the last year or so in many ways because of the, the difficulties and the challenges that we are necessarily facing in our culture of what it means to be a follower of Jesus living in a world that's very similar to Corinth. It's very similar in that it is not necessarily a Bible-believing Christian Judeo foundational society where everything's just kind of based on a biblical assumption. We don't live in that world anymore. And what's encouraging to me about this verse is Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is writing to believers and he tells them, in fact, he exhorts them. He says, I want you to be steadfast and immovable. Everybody say these two words with me. Say steadfast, immovable. The very fact that he includes these words in a command to us under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit tells me that it is possible for you and I to be steadfast and immovable regardless of what is happening around us, regardless of you know what's going on in our culture, no matter what difficulty we might be facing, whether it's in the church or outside of the church, whether it's internal or whether it's external, we can live steadfast and immovable lives. And when I read this verse, I think about being steadfast and immovable. It immediately reminds me of a game that uh, I taught my kids when they were real little. Now, my kids are not little anymore. My daughter just got married uh, two or th three weeks ago. So she's our oldest. Ashley got married and and Jared is my, my only son. He's right in the middle, so I've got a son sandwich between two girls. And so my youngest is 17, so I've got 17, 20, and 21. And uh, so they're all growing up. And my daughter got married. My youngest is in high school. Uh, she'll be a senior. And my son's in college. My son especially loved this game that I taught him when he was real little. It's called, it's called the shove game or the, the push game. He had all kinds of different names for it, and he was fascinated by it when he was little. And here's the name of the game. The name of the game is you got to stand toe-to-toe -to -toe with somebody with just a few inches between your toes, and you got to hold your hands up at shoulder height, and you have to knock the other person off balance. 
Now, I learned this game from my dad, and my dad taught it, so I passed it down. The girls liked it a little bit, but they kind of, you know, were like, oh, don't slap me, Dad. Hug me. Now, sons, though, don't want hugs. They want to shove their dad around. And so my son, he's like four or five, Dad, let's play a shove game. All right, so we go in the kitchen. Slippery floor. I said, all right, line them up. So toes go toes, and uh, hands get up. And, and the, the goal is, is to either knock the other person's hands. You have to keep your hands up. Knock the other person's hands so that they take a step back or sucker them into overexerting themselves and pushing towards you to where they take a step forward. And so it's all in the technique. So when I was little, or when my son was little, you know, it was just easy. Just kind of let him slap my hands, and, and then just he'd slide across the floor. But when my son became a junior in high school, my son was, well, now my son is six foot six, 280 pounds. Blonde and blue-eyed, looks just like me. And uh, so as a junior, sophomore, junior, senior in high school, he got bigger. He had never, ever beat me, not once. And so he's like, Dad, how do you play the game? I'm like, the, the name of the game is you got to know when to lean in. You got to know when to lean back. He's like, come on, try it again. Now, as he's getting bigger, his voice is changing. It begins to be like this. Dad, let's play the shove game. All right, here we go. Let's go. So he's a junior, and he comes in, and uh, he's a big boy. And I leaned in at the wrong time just as he was pushing out, and he shoved me almost across the room through the wall. The drywall cracked. I mean, it was one of those moments. And I looked up from that, and he looked up at me in shock like, I just beat Dad. And then it went to, I just beat Dad. <laughs> and he's a big old boy. I'm like, oh, grasshopper, now you are snatched pebble. It's time for you to go. Never again. We never play again. So now he's like, let's play, Dad. And he's a big old boy. So he just, he's, got the, he's got it down. He's figured out that the way that you win the shove game, it's very easy. Well, it's somewhat easy. You have to know when to lean in and when to lean back. You know, the very same thing, I think, is true when we're talking about living in a steadfast and an immovable life. What's the key to that? The key is knowing when to lean in and it's knowing when to lean back. It's knowing when to lean in and when to lean back. The world around us is drastically changing. You know, there's things that are shaking in the natural, and there are things that are shaking in the spiritual, and there are things that are shaking in the geopolitical economic world. Over the last couple of months in Michigan, we've had two earthquakes did anybody feel any of the earthquakes when it took place? The epicenter of the 4.61 was about two and a half miles from our home. And I was in the car, so I missed it. I didn't feel it. I got texts, all kinds of texts telling me, did you feel that? I didn't feel it because I was moving. But things fell off walls, and, you know, there was some damage that took place. Earthquakes in Michigan. About a month ago, there was an, a, a huge earthquake in Nepal. Earthquake in Japan. Things are shifting in the natural. Tectonic plates that you can't see with the natural eye that are deep under the surface, but when heat and pressure is applied, it creates rumblings on the surface. That's going on in the natural. And how many know that that's going on in every sphere of life? It's going on in every sphere. The, the, the fallout of the Greek economy is taking place. Globalization, the, the uh, Supreme Court of the United States is making decisions. Politics is already ramping up for the 2016 election. Things are shifting and shaking at an accelerating pace like we have never seen before. 
And yet, in the middle of a shaking, shifting culture, God calls you and I, as followers of Jesus, to be steadfast and immovable. How do we do that? Well, number one, we got to know when to lean in. And that's exactly what Paul encourages us to do. He says, be steadfast and movable, brethren. And then he starts off by saying this, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Is it possible for us to live an unshakable life? Yes. How do we do it? We lean in. We've got to know when to lean in. And leaning in for the believer is abounding intentionally in the work of the Lord. It's abounding in the work of the Lord. It's, it's finding kingdom work. It's having a kingdom perspective. It's investing our lives into things that are eternal in nature because while everything that is seen is being shaken, the eternal realm is unshaken. How many know the kingdom of God is not shakable? It is not shakable. Hebrews tells us we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Bible tells us, God says, once more, yet I will shake heaven and earth and everything in it, so that that which remains, so that that which can will remain. And that which will remain is the kingdom of God that you and I are part of. So when we lean in and we abound in the work of the Lord, the things of the kingdom, the things that are eternal, what we're doing is we're investing into things that are unshakable so that when everything else around us whether it's in our lives or other people's lives, when the dust gets shaken off, what's left is something that is eternal, something that is significant, something that changes and transforms lives. But so often, even as Christians, as people that, you know, we believe in eternity, we believe in reward, we believe in God, we believe in the kingdom of God, we believe in sowing and reaping, it's so easy for us to lose our balance We're leaning in, but we lose our balance when things begin to shake around us. We lose our balance because we get distracted. We lose our focus on what's really important. We get distracted by, you know, the busyness of life. We get distracted by all the peripheral noises and voices all around us trying to garner our attention. You know, 50 years ago, Things were different than the world that you and I live in. When I grew up, and and I'm 44, when I grew up, some of you will resonate with this, I grew up with a television, but we only had like four stations, four channels. I tell my kids that, and they're just like, what? I'm like, yeah, four channels. And if you wanted to change the channel, you actually had to get up and go to the television and click, 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 click. And we had like UHF, VHF. Remember that? It was like, click it to the U, and then boom, 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 boom. And so I grew up in Clarkston, uh, Michigan, not too far from here and, until I moved to Grand Rapids years ago. So for me, it was Channel 50 and Channel 20 and Channel 4, Channel 7, and uh, all the Detroit stations. But that's all that we had. Now how many channels do we have? When I was a kid, if you didn't, you didn't automatically get good reception. You actually had to get up, mess with the rabbit ears. You had to like put aluminum foil on the ends of the antennas. Have your sister who had bangs hairsprayed like a satellite dish stand next to the TV so you get better reception. Now we've got cable, satellite, dish. We've got all kinds of stuff and five thousand channels and pay per view and Netflix and Hulu and everything else. What does that do? If we're not careful, it can distract us. We're always looking at a screen of some sort. How connected are we? It's amazing to walk through town and to see how people aren't looking around. They're just like this all the time, distracted. And when we got a free moment, what are we doing? We're scrolling through everybody else's life. 
Facebook, oh, what are they doing? Twitter, what are they doing? Instagram, what are they doing? And now we got Periscope. It's like I need a live circuit television view of everybody. Look at here's me eating. Here I'm at Radiant Church Ann Arbor, and everybody who subscribes to me can see my life. We are distracted. And we miss out on so many things that can be significant in the long term because we're addicted to distraction in the short term. We lose our balance when we get distracted. We also lose our balance when we get deceived. And when we get deceived, what I'm talking about concerning the work of the Lord is, is sometimes we can look at the way things are and say, you know what, it's over. It's never going to get any better. This is just the new reality. Nobody's lives are ever going to be changed. My work is in vain, and so, you know, it doesn't really matter. And the enemy would love for us to believe that lie. Let me tell you something. The number one lie the devil wants people to believe is that you can't be made right with God. But if you get saved, if you find a relationship with Jesus, he has a backup lie. And here's the backup lie. The backup lie is a deception that will keep you from doing anything significant in the work of the Lord because he'll tell you that it really doesn't matter. If he can't keep you from being saved, he just wants to keep you on the bench of distraction or discouragement so that you don't try and do anything. But the church that I read about in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I'm talking about a church that's made up of individuals that live our lives in the marketplace, in the schools, in the workplace, in the, in the halls of a university, or in a law office, or homeschooling their kids, or students that are in a hallways, or sitting behind a desk, that aren't insignificant individuals waiting to go to heaven someday on a whim, but you are filled with the power, the glory, and the perspective of heaven. You are the leaven that's been put in the, the middle of the lump. You are positioned where you are. You are positioned because the gates of hell cannot defeat you as long as you move in. But the enemy wants to keep us deceived and distracted. There was a man many, many years ago who was very, very wealthy, came from a fortune on the East Coast and got saved and made it his determination that he was going to go on the mission field. His last name was Borden. And uh, he actually, after many, many years of preparation, he went onto the mission field in Egypt, in the Middle East, before anybody else was going there. And his story is amazing. William Borden, he actually died on the mission field. But I'll never forget his story because he said something in his story. There were three things that he wrote in his journal. First one was no retreat. Second one was no reserve. And the third one was no regret. No retreat, which means I'm never backing down. I'm not turning back. No reserve, which means 100% of who I am and what I have, I'm investing into the work of the Lord. I'm going all out for God. And no regrets. The no regret one hits me hard. Because here's what I know is if we keep an eternal perspective, if we keep an eternal perspective, it's going to cause us to lean in. Because we only lean in, we only become intentional and lean in with our energy and our attention and our time and our resources. We only really lean into things that we value. 
And that no retreat thing, here's what I know. Nobody on the other side of eternity, on that day, what a glorious day, by the way, that's going to be, right? When we see Jesus face to face, when all of our questions are answered, when we're no longer looking through a glass dimly, when we're no longer uh, having to wipe tears off of our face any longer because of the pain of loss, when our faith has become sight, on that day, there will be no one, not one person, who will stand there and say, you know, I regret that I did too much for the Lord. There will be no, nobody's going to say, man, this is all that there is. I wish I hadn't, I wish I had taken a little more time off. When we see the lost people who got saved because of our efforts in heaven on that day, nobody will say, wow, I really went overboard. I was a little too radical. I was a little too committed. Wow, sorry, Jesus. But I'll bet you this, that there's going to be, if there's any regret in heaven, the only regret I can think of is that we didn't do more. That we got too anchored into this age, that we spent too much time being distracted by things that weren't significant, that we fought over petty things. You see, in a world that is shaken, God does not want a church that is shaken. He wants a church that is stirred, but not a church that is shaken. Psalm 62, David writes this. He says, For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. My fortress, I will not be shaken. See, David knew that when troubled times came, and he had some troubled times, he was persecuted, lied about. He never did anything wrong other than serve the king and serve the Lord. And yet he, he spent a lot of time on the run, being persecuted, being lied about, being chased. But while he's hiding in a cave, not even in a palace, while he's hiding in a cave, he says, God, in spite of all these things, I will not be shaken. I'm not going to be shaken inside, and I'm not going to be shaken off of pursuing your plan and your destiny for my life. Let that be said about us. If you want to live a steadfast and an immovable life, then lean into the work of the Lord. Don't allow yourself to become contaminated with passion deficiency syndrome. It's a disease that infects the church so often where our passion for Jesus wanes and we're just kind of complacent. It's just kind of going through the motions. And, you know, I can tolerate the Bible and I'll go to church when it's convenient. And, and uh, you know, a small group, that's a little bit too much of a commitment. And, I've, you know, God, I give you one day. I've got six days for myself. I give you one day. God doesn't want one day. He doesn't want one hour. He wants all of us. He wants us all in. I want you to think throughout history who are the people that are in history books? They're not people that were complacent and apathetic and average and comfortable. They're people that took risks. They're people that were committed. And the people in the world who make a difference are people that go all out. I want to just challenge you this morning. Be somebody that leans in. It's like, Lord, what do you need? What do you, what is, where's the opportunity today? God, what do we have to do you know, to fill this theater up? I don't even know how many seats are in here, Jeremy. How many seats are in here? 309. We need 310 people in church on a Sunday morning. You know why 310? Just so that we got one person standing over here so that somebody else can give up their seat and demonstrate the love of Jesus. Come on, who will believe for me for 310 people in church on a Sunday in 2015? You say, well, that will never happen. Come on, lean in. 
Lean in. Invite somebody. Pray for somebody. Buy somebody's coffee at Starbucks. Invite them to come to church. If they say, well, I don't like church, say, oh, it's all right. I don't like the dentist, but I still go. Come with me. I promise you. And invite them. We got a seat for you. And be nice to them when they walk in and tell them this is family. Welcome home. And let's lean into the work of the Lord. The second part is equally important is that we lean back. Paul writes that. He says, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That's leaning in. And then the second part is knowing that your labor is not in vain. What is that? That means leaning back. Finding our rest. Finding our stable place and our footing. Leaning back in the knowledge that what we do is not in vain, even though we may never see the fruit of it on this side of eternity. We may never see the fruit of it. What you do in somebody's life as you become Jesus to them in the mundane, average, day-to-day things changes somebody's lives, whether you know it or not. The opposite of that is discouragement. It's where the enemy comes in and says, you know, it really doesn't matter. It really doesn't work. And we can become discouraged, and when we get discouraged, we'll never get on the wall. We'll never rebuild. We'll never do things. If you're a Detroit Lions fan, you understand chronic discouragement. You know what this is like. Honolulu, blue and silver. I've been a fan since I went to the first game ever played in the Silverdome as a little kid with my dad. I mean, I've been rooting for the Lions since back in the day. And every year, it's like, this is the year. Restore the roar. Crickets crickets come on now I, I've got faith anybody else got faith for this year come on I know we're in Wolverine land here but uh, there is a pro team in this state if you've been a Lions fan you understand discouragement and sometimes in the church that same level of discouragement can come in and steal from us our perspective that what we do really does matter the big things and the little things. I'll, oftentimes I'll talk to some young people who are kind of coming up, inspiring, who say, you know, I want to do something great for God. And I love that attitude. Yeah, let's do something great for God. But here's what I also want to say to them. It's like, but while you're waiting for something great to happen, how about you do something small for God? And believe that the thing that you do that's small and insignificant maybe to other people, and you may never see, that it really does matter. Because little things grow into big things, as long as we don't get discouraged. You know, years ago, uh, I think about little things. I think about when I was 12 years old, uh, I gave my life to the Lord at 12 years old, my grandparents' church. I came back from my grandparents for the summer and uh, told my mom I I wanted to go to church. I said, I'm a Christian. I feel called into ministry, and I'm going to church. My mom was a lapsed Christian. My stepdad was not a Christian. He was a great theist. He believed in God, but he didn't like organized church. And uh, I said, I'm going to church. So I flipped open uh, the Yellow Pages. You guys remember Yellow Pages? Before Google, there was this thing called Yellow Pages. Like flipped it open to churches, and I found this church in Grand Rapids. And I called up the church. It was the same name as the church I'd gotten saved in. And so I called up, and they arranged for a ride for me to go to church. So this family right down the street, the Ryersons, drove by, picked up this 12-year-old kid, gave me a ride to church. But I think they thought that I knew people at this church. It was a huge church, about three or 4,000 people. And uh, so when I walked in, they all went their separate ways. But there's this massive crowd of people, and I didn't know where to go. I'm a 12-year-old kid, kind of insecure, don't know where I'm going. 
And there was a gentleman there who was like a greeter. He was an elderly gentleman. He must have been in his 70s, late 60s, 70s. And, and he was wearing, I'll never forget, a navy blue blazer with gold brass buttons, khaki pants, and, you know, a shirt on. And he had a little patch on his jacket that said centurion. That's what they called him at that church. And, and uh, he looked at me, and he goes, young man, do you know where you're going? And I said, oh, not really. He says, well, well, the main sanctuary is that way, and, you know, junior high is that way. He said, you can go to either. And I, I must have looked like a deer looking in the headlights because he said, or you can stand here with me for a while. And I said, I'll stand here with you for a while. So I stood there, and the message in the worship came over the intercom in the hallway. Wasn't, wasn't fancy. I wasn't really even listening. I was talking to this man. His name was Roy. Roy was probably in his early 70s, I'm pretty sure. But Roy just talked to me as a 12-year-old kid. He asked me, he says, well, um, what did you have for breakfast? And I said, I don't know. And he said, well, I had peanut butter toast. He says, I have peanut butter toast every morning because you get your carbohydrates and your protein all at the same time, and you're all set till lunch. It was deeply spiritual. <laughs> but I'm 44, and I still remember him saying peanut butter and toast. And he sat there, and he talked with me the entire service. And I said, all right, well, I got to go. And he said, well, I'll see you next week. He looked for me the next week. And I stood with him for about a month, month and a half, every Sunday, listening to the message, talking with Roy, until he finally said, I want to introduce you to my son and his, and his kids who are about my age. And, and then pretty quickly I ran into a couple of my friends who went there, and I got plugged into the life flow of that church. In that church, I was filled with the Holy Spirit. In that church, I was discipled. In that church, I learned all kinds of things that set me on a course to really follow through with the Lord. And you know how it started? It started with one one man who believed that if he got out of bed that morning and he actually showed up to church and he put on his blue blazer and he talked to somebody about peanut butter toast, it would make a difference. And I thought to myself, what would have happened on that given day had Roy said, you know what, I've worked hard all my life. I deserve to have a weekend off. I think I'll just take the day off. What would have happened? Now, God may have had a backup plan, but I'm glad that that plan A showed up. And you are God's plan A. You are God's plan A. When you show up and you serve, you're God's plan A for that day. You have no idea what God has arranged, who is going to cross your path. I, I've, Roy, has, Roy has since gone on to be with the Lord. Roy has no idea that I pastor a church, that I've planted other churches, that I lead an organization, that I've written a book. He has no idea. But in heaven, maybe God has told him, do you remember that young man who walked in the hallway? Oh, yeah, look at what he's doing. And he probably has a little comfort monitor, you know, a security confidence monitor. And he's like, yeah, check out Lee right down there. He's like, that's because he goes, yeah, you talked to him about peanut butter toast. Look at what he's doing down there. That was pretty good payoff. He's like, yeah. So now we're here in Ann Arbor today because one guy got up and ate his toast, put his jacket on, and went to church. Because he didn't just, he didn't lean out. He leaned back in the knowledge that what he was doing was making a difference. Think about Peter. You know, Peter was just a fisherman. In Galilee, the backwoods area side of Israel, nobody... Nobody, nobody gave Galilee any thought. It was, you know, if you, if you grew up in Galilee, on the Sea of Galilee, you were kind of the, you were a Jewish redneck. That's how people in Jerusalem thought of Galilee. Peter was just a fisherman. And one day, 
after a long night of fishing and catching nothing, he pulls his boat up on the shore. He's cleaning his nets. He hasn't caught any fish, therefore he's not made any money. He wants to go home. He's tired. And Jesus shows up. And Jesus shows up, comes up over the sand dune, down into his boat. And Luke chapter 5 tells us that Jesus got into Peter's boat, began to preach to the crowds. And then he turned to Peter and he said to Peter, Launch out into the deep, Peter, and let down your nets for a catch. Now see, that meant he was going to have to set the sails up, row it out, the nets that he had just folded and cleaned, he's going to have to get them dirty and unfold them again. It's in the middle of the morning. It's the wrong time to catch fish. Who's this preacher boy coming along who's trying to tell me how to fish? I fished all my life. Stick to theology. I'll stick to fishing. Jesus inconveniences him in the moment. Tells him, push out from land, go out into the deep, and let down your nets for a catch. Listen to Peter's response. Simon said to him, Master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. And their net was breaking. Peter gets out in the boat. He could have been overwhelmed by the immensity of the task. Is this worth it? Pushing my boat out putting down the nets again. It's like, we don't even know where all the fish are. This sea is huge. I got one net, one boat. I got one life. And look at how enormous this lake is. What are the odds that all of a sudden in the middle of the day when the fish are not on the surface, they're deep, and they're scattered all over the lake. They're not in pools. What do you think the odds are that if I let down my nets right here because a preacher told me to, that somehow I'm going to catch anything? He could have said, you know what, this is in vain. This isn't worth it. I'm just going home. He could have packed up, and he would have missed a life-changing experience. He let down his net. Nevertheless, Lord, at your word, because you say so, I'll let down my net. And he did it. And not only did his net fill up with fish, he couldn't pull it in. He had to call for neighbors to come and help. And then when he pulled it in, his boat began to sink. And so did his neighbor's boat begin to sink. How many fishermen would like to have a day like that? You need to listen to your preachers, by the way. And he turns to Jesus and he says, Master, I'm an unclean man. He was undone on the inside because in that moment he got perspective. He realized you don't have to figure out how to change the world. You just have to be faithful in the little thing that God has called you to partner with him in. Lean back. Lean back in the trust that God is good. You know, Ecclesiastes chapter 1 says, Vanity, vanity. Everything in this world is vanity. In other words, it's meaningless. That was written by Solomon, the man who had more money, more wisdom, more power, more authority, more relationships. He had had it all. And at the end of his life, he said, Everything that this world has is empty. It's vanity. It's worthless. It's not worth it. But everything in Jesus stands forever. It's unshakable. It's unmovable. It's eternal. It's everlasting. Makes a difference. It changes people's lives. Lean in, lean back, and live a steadfast and an immovable life. Would you stand with me this morning? 
a steadfast and an immovable life. I just want to pray for you this morning. Would you just place your hand over your heart? Just a way of physically engaging ourselves and opening up our hearts to the Lord. And today, Lord, this is my prayer for Radiant Church Ann Arbor and every person who's here. That, Lord, that you would stir our hearts. Stir our hearts with a passion for your name, God. Stir up the gifts and the callings that are in us because your Holy Spirit is present in us. Lord, fan the flame of passion for Jesus to see this city, this region reached to not be overwhelmed by the immensity of it, to not believe the lie that it's impossible, that it's too difficult, that the ground is too rocky and too stony, that people don't care, they're disinterested. Jesus, you are the Savior of the world. You are the only one who can save, deliver, and heal. Every chain is broken at your name. Every scale is pulled back from people's eyes. Every hard heart is chiseled soft once again, God. You are the one who speaks to dead things and calls them back to life. Lord, would you not only stir our hearts, but open our eyes to be able to see you, to see people, to see our actions, to see the kingdom of God in a fresh, new, victorious way. Lord, we want to live steadfast and immovable for you. And we believe that as we do that, God, you will pour out your favor, your presence, and your blessing upon our lives and provide everything that we have need of today. In Jesus' name, amen. Man, if you believe that, come on, let's lift up an applause unto Jesus, a passionate applause unto Jesus.